right. Well, father is dead. It is a very sad sort of thing to think of when I'm picking up the book today and going, oh, you know, I'm kind of going to miss St. Aubert. Like, he seemed like a man full of foibles, but, you know, who isn't? Uh, and then now the thing that I dreaded happening to Emily has now definitely happened. She is alone in the world in a strange, far-off place. I mean, she's not alone alone. She has a servant with her, but how is she going to get home? And it all is just, uh, and arranging for her father's burial. And, like, uh, yeah, I feel very sorry for our dear Emily. Um, so picking up the chapter today, wondering how she's going to cope and manage all of this. She who has not seem to have a lot to manage before in her life. This is going to be a real test, um, which, as we talked about before, is very classic in a sort of hero um, arc. Like, the hero, of course, has to have an initial test that they fail miserably. Um, so I'm anticipating this does not go well. I might go well. But uh, I'm just anticipating, at this point, this first test of her independence is going to go poorly. But we'll see. Um, and so we'll get started today with chapter 9. I'm guessing we won't finish. Uh, it looks like a bit of a long one. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started uh, with chapter 8. O'er him whose doom thy virtues grieve, Aerial forms shall sit at eve, and bend the pensive head. Collins The monk who before had appeared returned in the evening to offer consolation to Emily, and brought a kind message from the lady abbotess, inviting her to the convent. Emily, though she did not accept the offer, returned an answer expressive of her gratitude. The holy conversation of the friar, whose mild benevolence of manners bore some resemblance to those of St. Aubert, soothed the violence of her grief, and lifted her heart to the being, who, extending through all place and all eternity, looks on the events of this little world as on shadows of a moment, and beholds equally, and, in the same instance, the soul has passed the gates of death and that which still lingers in the body. "'In the sight of God,' said Emily, "'my dear father now exists, as truly as yesterday he existed to me.' It is only to me that he is dead. To God and to himself he yet lives. The good monk left her in a more tranquil left her more tranquil than she had been since Saint Aubert died, and before she retired to the little cabin for the night she entrusted herself so far as to visit the corpse. Silent and without weeping she stood by its side. The features placid and serene told of the nature of the last sensations that had lingered away in the now deserted frame. For a moment she turned away, in horror of the stillness in which death had fixed the countenance, never till now seen otherwise than animated, and gazed on it with a mixture of doubt and awful astonishment. Her reason could scarcely overcome an involuntary and unaccountable expectation of seeing that beloved countenance still susceptible. She continued to gaze wildly, took up the cold hand, spoke, still gazed, and then burst into a transportation of grief. La Vosan, hearing her sobs, came into the room and led her away, but she heard nothing, only begged that he would leave her. Again alone she indulged in tears, and when the gloom of evening obscured the chamber and almost veiled from her eyes the object of her distress, she still hung over the body, till her spirits at length were exhausted and she became tranquil. 
Lavasan again knocked at the door and entreated that she would come into the common apartment. Before she went, she kissed the lips of St. Aubert, as she was wont to do when she bade him good night. Again she kissed him and felt as if her heart would break. A few tears of agony started in her eyes, and she looked up to heaven, and then at St. Aubert, and then left the room. Retired to her lonely cabin, her melancholy thoughts still hovered round the body of her deceased parent, and when she sunk into a kind of slumber, the images of her waking mind still haunted her fancy. She thought she saw her father approaching her with a benign countenance, then smiling mournfully and pointing upwards, his lips moved, but instead of words she heard sweet music borne on the distant air, and presently saw his features glow with the mild rapture of a superior being. The music seemed to swell louder, and she woke. The vision was gone, but the music yet came to her ear, in strains such as angels might breathe. She doubted, listened, raised herself up in bed, and listened again. It was music, and not just the illusion of her imagination. After a solemn and steady harmony, it paused, then rose again in mournful sweetness, and then died in a cadence that seemed to bear away the listening soul to heaven. She instantly remembered the music of the preceding night, and with the strange circumstances related by La Vosson, and the affecting conversation it had led to concerning the state of departed spirits. All that St. Aubert had said on that subject now pressed upon her heart and overwhelmed it. What a change in a few hours! He, who could then only conjecture, was now made acquainted with the truth, what he himself was himself become one of the departed. As she listened, she was chilled with superstitious awe. Her tears stopped, and she rose and went to the window. All was obscured in shade, but Emily, turning her eyes in the massy darkness of the wood, whose waving outline appeared on the horizon, saw now on the left that engulfing planet which the old man had pointed out, setting over the woods. She remembered what he had said concerning about it, and the music now coming at intervals on the air, she unclosed the casement and listened to the strains that soon gradually sunk into a greater distance. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, it's no reflection on the book, I swear. Um, and then tried to discover whence they came. The obscurity prevented her from distinguishing any object on the green platform below. And the sounds became fainter and fainter till they softened into silence. She listened, but they returned no more. Soon after, she observed the planet trembling between the fringed tops of the wood, and the next moment to sink behind them. Chilled with a melancholy awe, she returned once more to her bed, and at length forgot for a while about her sorrows and sleep. On the following morning she was visited by a sister of the convent, who came with kind offices and a second invitation from the lady abbess, and Emily, though she could not forsake the cottage while the remains of her father were in it, consented, however, painful as such a visit must be, in the present state of her spirits, to pay her respects to the abbess in the evening." guess it's abbess and not abbotus. I thought it was abbotus, but apparently there's no T at all in that word. About an hour before sunset, Lavasan showed her the way through the woods to the convent, which stood by the small bay of the Mediterranean, crowded by a woody amphitheater. Emily, had she been less unhappy, would have admired the extensive sea view that had appeared from the green slope in front of the edifice and run along the shores, hung with woods and pastures that extended on either hand. But her thoughts were now occupied by one sad idea, and the features of nature were colorless and without form. The bell for vespers struck, and as she passed through the ancient great gate of the convent, that seemed the funeral note for St. Aubert. Little incidents affected the mind, and 
enervated by sorrow. Ooh. Emily struggled against the sickening faintness that came over her and was led into the presence of the abbess, who received her with an air of maternal tenderness, an air of such gentle solicitude and consideration as touched her with instantaneous gratitude. Her eyes were filled with tears, and the words she would have spoken faltered on her lips. The abbess led her to a seat and sat down beside her, still holding her hand and regarding her in silence, and Emily dried her tears and attempted to speak. "'Be composed, my daughter,' said the abbess in a soothing voice. "'Do not speak yet. I know all you would say. Your spirits must be soothed. We are going to prayers. Will you attend our evening service?' It is comfortable, my child, to look upon the afflictions to a father. Look up in our afflictions to a father who sees and pities us and who chastens us in his mercy. Emily's tears flowed again, but a thousand sweet emotions mingled with them. The abbess suffered her to weep without interruption and watched over her with a look of benignity. Benignity. Oof. This chapter is throwing me, guys. That might have characterized the countenance of a guardian angel. Emily, when she became tranquil, was encouraged to speak without reserve and to mention the motive that made her unwilling to quit the cottage, which the abbess did not oppose even by a hint, but praised the filial piety of her conduct and added hope that she would pass a few days at the convent before she returned to La Vallée. "'You must allow yourself a little time to recover from your first shock, my daughter,' before you encounter a second. I must not affect to conceal from you. I will not affect to conceal from you how much I know your heart must suffer on returning to the scene of your former happiness. Here you will have all quiet and sympathy that a religion can give to restore your spirits. But come, added she, observing her tears swelling in Emily's eyes, we will go to the chapel. Emily followed into the parlor where the nuns were assembled, and to whom the abbess committed her, saying, This is a daughter, for whom I have much esteem. Be sisters to her. They passed in a train to the chapel, chapel where solemn devotion, in which the service was performed, elevated her mind and brought it with the comforts of faith and resignation. Twilight came on before the abbess's kindness would suffer Emily to depart, and when she left the convent with a heart much lighter than she'd entered it, and was reconducted by La Vosson through the woods, the pensive gloom, which was a unison with temper and mind, and she pursued the little wild path in the musing silence, till her guide suddenly stopped, looked around, then struck out on a path into the high grass, saying he'd mistaken the road. He now walked on quickly, and Emily, proceeding with difficulty over the obscured and uneven ground, was left at some distance, till her voice arrested him, who seemed unwilling to stop and still hurried on. "'If you are in doubt about the way,' said Emily, "'had we better not inquire at the chateau yonder between the trees?' "'No,' replied Lavoisant. "'There is no occasion. "'When we reach that brook, mademoiselle, "'you see the light upon the water there beyond the woods. "'When we reach that brook, we shall be home presently. "'I don't know how it happened I mistook the path. "'I seldom come this way after sunset.' "'It is solitary enough,' said Emily.' But you have no banditti here. No, mademoiselle, no banditti. What are you afraid of then, my good friend? You are not superstitious. No, not superstitious, but I tell you the truth. Lady, nobody likes to go near that chateau. After dusk. 
by whom is it inhabited, said Emily, that it is so formidable? Why, mademoiselle, it is scarcely inhabited, for the lord, for our lord the marquis, and the lord of these fine woods too, he is dead. He had not been once in it these many years, and his people, who now have the care of it, live in the cottage close by. We talked about this the other day, Emily. Focus! <laughs> Sorry. Emily now understood this to be part of the chateau, which La Voisson had formerly pointed out as having much belonged to the Marquis Villaroni, on the mention of which her father had appeared so much affected. Ah, it's a desolate place now, continued La Voisson. And such a grand, fine place as I remember it. Emily inquired as to what had occasioned this lamentable change. But the old man was silent, and Emily, whose interest was awakened by the fear he had expressed, and above all by recollection of her father's agitation, repeated the question, and added, If you are neither afraid of the inhabitants, my good friend, or suspicious, oh, my sister's going to kill me. I told my sister after she'd scolded me, she's like, three days in a row, the podcast's been interrupted by your phone, Elizabeth. What are you doing? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll change my do not disturb settings. I didn't. Sorry. Sorry, people of the podcast world. Anyway, as long as we're paused, um, I will mention why Emily is lingering here. Um, there was a very strong belief in this era, um, and especially about letting the body rest before it's buried um that you let it have a vigil of three nights um where people do keep watch over it It is very common practice um and it is largely superstitious but rooted perhaps in a variety of necessities um one of which being um medically uh before you know advanced machinery that could help bring people back to life um or you know find out if they're still alive you know heart monitors and so on so forth uh people could often fall into death-like um comas where they have very low pulse that's non-detectable um practically and then seemingly rise from the dead a few days later. Uh, so there was a, you know, and it, the, it seems like the, the jury is still out over how common that actually was, but it became apparently enough of an issue that that was one of the reasons the superstitions arose. It, it, all in all, all superstitions stem from real world needs of humanity to explain happenings and so you say you need three days for the soul to fully depart a body so you gotta let the body sit out for three days well in those three days if the person had any medical issues um that bring them back to life quote unquote you would find out it gives um time for inheritance to be settled so that everything's all done and good before the person is actually interred um, or cremated, depending on what region you're in of the world um, and what your religion is. So it, there were there were various reasons why it was important um, to have a a resting period. And then, of course, wherever reasons are present, like I said, we bring up superstitions as a way of reminding ourselves why it's important to do those things. 
Um, one of the examples that I think is like easiest to throw out there is is if you look at um, is like uh, several religions have you know God doesn't want us to eat our gods don't want us to eat this our gods don't want us to eat that and a lot of the time those are superstitions that arose from actual incidences. I'm not trying to offend anyone's religious beliefs here. Uh, I'm just saying that in general, a lot of those things come about because, and I'm not saying even current religions, they could have been past religions. I'm not saying anything about any particular religion. I realize I might be stepping on toes, but you guys kind of get what I mean, that there are a lot of things that we do that, you know, someone watched someone eat a muscle and was like, that guy got super sick. Pretty sure God doesn't want me to eat muscles. And now the whole religion kind of develops this feel that that's, and I know that you're pure. Yeah. Okay. And anyway, we're going to move on. Cause I just suddenly realized that I got myself down a rabbit hole, um, <laughs> with religious debates, but, uh, so that's what Emily's waiting around for. And that was, um, it was even mentioned in the death chapter and I, I just kind of skimmed past it, but, um, St. Oberia himself even mentioned that Emily would have to stay at the cottage for a few days because he knew she'd have to stay while his corpse aired out for a few days, um, after death. Anyway, and as long as we were paused from the stupid phone making sound, I thought I'd just touch on that. Ah, it's desolate now, continued Lavoisan. And such a grand, fine place it was, I remember. Emily inquired, but... Oh, yeah. If you're neither superstitious nor afraid of the inhabitants, my good friend, how happens it that you dread to pass near the chateau in the dark? Well, perhaps then I'm a little superstitious, mademoiselle. And if you knew what I do, you might be too. Strange things have happened there. Monsieur, your good father, appeared to have known the late Marquis' wife. Pray inform me what did happen, said Emily with much emotion. Alas, mademoiselle, answered Lavoisson, inquire no further. It is not for me to lay open the domestic secrets of my lord. Emily, surprised by the old man's word and his manner of delivering them, forbore her repeat to the question. A nearer interest in the remembrance of St. Aubert occupied her thoughts, and she was led to recollect the music she had heard the preceding night, which she mentioned to La Boisson. "'You are not alone, mademoiselle, in this,' he replied. "'I heard it, too, but I've so often heard it at the same hour I was scarcely surprised.' "'You doubtless believe this music to have some connection with the chateau,' said Emily suddenly, "'and therefore are superstitious.' It may be so, mademoiselle, but there are other circumstances belonging to that chateau which I remember, and sadly, too. A heavy sigh followed, but Emily's delicacy restrained the curiosity these words revived, and she inquired no further. On reaching the cottage, all the violence of her grief returned. It seemed as if she had escaped some heavy pressure only while she was removed from the object of it. She passed immediately to the chamber where the remains of her father laid, and yielded to all the anguish of hopeless grief. Lavoisson at length persuaded her to leave the room, and she returned to her own, where, exhausted by the sufferings of the day, she soon fell into a deep sleep, and awoke considerably refreshed. 
When the dreadful hour arrived in which the remains of St. Aubert were to be taken from her forever, she went again alone to the chamber to look upon his countenance. Yet once again, La Vosson, who waited patiently below stairs till her despair should subside, with respect due to grief, forbear the to interrupt the indulgence of it, till surprised at the length of her stay, then apprehension overcame his delicacy, and he went in to lead her from the chamber. Having gently tapped at the door, receiving no answer, he listened attentively. All was still. No sigh, no sob was sounded. Yet more alarmed by this silence, he opened the door, and found Emily lying senseless at the foot of the bed, stood near which to the coffin. His calls to procure assistance, and she was soon carried to her room, where proper applications at length restored her. During her state of insensibility, La Vosson had given directions for the coffin to be closed, and he succeeded in persuading Emily to forbear revisiting the chamber. She indeed felt herself unequal to this, and also perceived the necessity of sparing her spirits, and recollecting her fortitude sufficient to bear through the approaching scene. St. Hubert should be given particular injunction, and that his remains should be interred at the church of the convent of St. Clair, who, in mentioning the north chancel near the ancient tomb of the Villarones, had pointed out the exact spot where he wished to be laid. The superior had granted this place for the internment, and thither, therefore, the sad procession now moved, which was met at the gates by the venerable priest, followed by a train of friars. Every person who heard the solemn chant of the anthem and the peal of the organ that struck up when the body entered the church also saw the feeble steps and assumed the tranquillity of Emily and gave her involuntary tears. She said not, shed none, but walked, her face partly shaded by a thin black veil, between two persons who supported her, preceded by the abbess and followed by nuns, whose plaintive voices mellowed with the swell of harmony of the dirge, which, when the process procession came to the grave the music ceased and emily drew the veil entirely over her face and in a momentary pause between the anthem and the rest of the service her sobs were distinctly audible the holy father began the service and emily again commanded her feelings so the coffin was let down and she heard the earth rattle on its lid then she shuddered and a groan burst forth from her heart and she leaned on the support of the person who stood next to her in a few moments she recovered and when she heard the affecting of those sublime words his body is buried in peace, and his soul returns to him that gave it. Her anguish softened into tears. The abbess led her from the church and down into her own parlor, and there administered all the consolations that religion and gentle sympathy can give. Emily struggled against the pressure of grief, but the abbess, observing her attentively, ordered a bed to be prepared and recommended her to retire to repose. She also kindly claimed her promise to remain a few days at the convent, and Emily, who wished to no return, who had no wish to return to the cottage, the scene of all her sufferings, had leisure, now that no immediate care pressed upon her attention, to feel the indisposition which disabled her from immediately travelling. Meanwhile, the maternal kindness of the abbess and the gentle attention of all the, that the nuns did that was possible towards soothing her spirits and restoring her health. But the latter was too deeply wounded through the me medium of her mind and to be quickly revived. She lingered for some weeks at the convent under the influence of the slow fever, wishing to return home, yet unable to go thither, often even reluctant to leave the spot where her father's relics were deposited, and sometimes soothing herself with the consideration that if she died here, her remains would be in repose by a side those of St. Aubert. 
In the meanwhile, she sent letters to Madame Chiron and the old housekeeper, informing them of the sad event that had taken place and of her own situation. From her aunt, she received an answer, abounding more in commonplace condolement than in the traits of real sorrow, which assured her that a servant should be sent to conduct her to La Vallée, for that in her own time she was much occupied by company, and she had no leisure to undertake so long a journey. However Emily might prefer La Vallée to Toulouse, she could not be insensible of the indecorous and unkind condition of her aunt in suffering her to return thither, where she no longer had a relation to console and protect her, a conduct which was the more culpable since St. Aubert had appointed Madame Chiron the garden of his orphan daughter. Uh, I kind of want to talk about that. We're running long on time. No, I'm going to talk about it. Okay, so the aunt here, who's supposed to be now Emily's sole protector in the world, said, why don't you go on home, honey? I've got company. And Emily's like, okay, so I'm going to go home where I have no relations. I'm suffering. I have, like, very little money. Like, I don't even know what I'm going to live on. And I've got servants that are going to have to be paid to take care of me because I'm a lady. I can't take care of myself. And the house can't take care of itself. And you're going to shuffle me on home. Like, this is just rude. Like, I can't even imagine this. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah, Emily probably, like she said, she really does kind of want to go back to La Valley. Like, that would be a lot nicer than going to her aunt's house. But it's still a little like, okay, well, then what? You know, where does that leave us? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen to me? Like, there are a lot of questions. Um, so it is pretty cold. Or at least, if not cold, at least pretty um, indecorous is the word they use. And you know, that's probably the best word to use. So anyway, yeah, uh, we'll get a little further and then we'll stop. Madame Charon's servant made the attendance of the good Levoisson unnecessary, and Emily, who felt sensibly her obligations to him for all his kind attention to her late father, as well as herself, was glad to spare him the long, and was, at his time of life, must have been a very troublesome journey. During her stay at the convent, the peace and sanctity of that reigned within, the tranquil beauty of the scenery without, and the delicate attentions of the abbess and the nuns were circumstances so soothing to her mind he almost tempted her to leave the world where she had lost her dearest friends and devote herself to the cloister in a spot rendered sacred to her by containing the tomb of St. Aubert. The pensive enthusiasm, too, so natural to her temper, and the spread of a beautiful illusion over the sanctified retirement of a nun almost hid from her view the selfishness of its security. But the touches, with a melancholy fancy slightly tinctured with superstition, gave to the monastic scene, began to fade as her spirits revived, and brought more once to her heart an image which only transity had banished thence. By this she was silently awakened to hope and comfort of the sweet affections, the visions of happiness gleamed faintly at a distance, and though she knew them to be only illusions, she could not resolve to shut them out forever. It was the remembrance of Valancourt, of his taste and his genius, and the countenance which glowed with both that perhaps alone determined her with both that perhaps alone determined her to return to the world. The grandeur of sublimity in the scenes which admits they had first met had fancied, fancied, fascinated her fancy. 
and <laughs> alliteration got me, and imperceptibly contributed to render Valancourt more interesting by seeming to communicate with him somewhat of their own character. The esteem, too, which St. Aubert had repeatedly expressed for him, sanctioned this kindness, but, though his countenance and manner had continually expressed his admiration of her, he had not otherwise declared it, and even the hope of seeing again was so distant that she was scarcely conscious of it, much less that it influenced her this conduct on this occasion. End for now of the chapter, which is a good thing because the madam's servant is going to get there next. So, end chapter seven for now. Chapter eight. Chapter something. All right. Well, um interesting interesting chapter um emily is a very lucky lady in many regards you know um that this could have gone so wrong so fast um but it seems like things have gotten pretty good for her um the convent seems like a nice place i'm glad she's decided she's not made out to be a nun um funny side story about being a nun in high school, we took those career aptitude tests. Um, I don't know if you guys all took them wherever you were from, but it was pretty common in our high schools uh, where we, I live um, in Idaho. Uh, and I kind of think across most of the U.S., they kind of do something similar to that. That, you know, the school's trying to help point you in a direction for your future life. Anyway, my aptitude test, um, which is, you know, like a series of, 150 questions or something ridiculous you know uh it came back and everyone's eagerly reviewing their results and you know oh i got an actor oh i got a politician oh i should be a lawyer i was i got two top top picks um they said i had great aptitude to be a firefighter or a nun and i just <laughs> I still don't know what to do with that. But sometimes in my life, when I feel like I don't know where to go, I just remind myself, and my sister reminds me often, you could be a firefighter or a nun. And, you know, it's like, I'm physically disabled. There's no way I'm being a firefighter. And I'm, like, very, very lightly religious adjacent. I'm not being a nun. <laughs> but it's interesting, um, Emily's little flirting with being a nun here, um... Not very surprising, considering what we've learned about Emily so far. Uh, yeah, so she uh, she's now got this aunt who doesn't seem to care much. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from there and how they get taken care of. I'm not surprised at all that she's thinking about her almost boyfriend. So we'll see how that goes on. Um... Yeah, I think I interrupted the chapter quite enough for one day, so I probably got most of my most of my things out earlier. How are you guys doing with it? Is it going pretty well? Are we happy? Everybody learning? Everybody enjoying? Alright, let me know if it's otherwise, and uh, we'll catch you tomorrow where we'll finish out the chapter this week. <laughs>